Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the East Meets West Hunt podcast presented by Spartan Forge. Today I'm joined by hunter and entrepreneur Kendall Card. Kendall is a well-known Western hunter and has launched many successful business ventures in the hunting industry, including Camel Fire, Black Ovis, and Crispy Boots. We discuss starting those businesses, financially planning for a mountain goat hunt, his 2020 Alaskan mountain goat bow hunt with Tim Burnett and his love for hunting whitetails in Kentucky. And this episode is brought to you by Spartan Forge. The Spartan Forge app utilizes years of military background and machine learning to pull from millions of data points to accurately predict deer movement, including GPS data, 30 years of weather, academic and state research. The new app will include GPS mapping with incredible aerial imagery, offline dependability, deer prediction, weather updates, journal entries, and much more. The beta app is released now, but in just over a day, they exceeded their goal and have the app temporarily only open to those beta testers. So the purpose of beta testing is for the consumer to get the product at a lower price while providing feedback to work out the final bugs before it goes full scale. The, the full-scale app should be out soon, probably in the next couple of weeks here. So if you use the code East Meets West, you'll save 25% off of the Spartan Forge app at SpartanForge.ai. Tethered is a company founded on the principles of educating the hunting community on saddle hunting while creating the most innovative, lightweight, safe products for saddle hunting. They have mobile hunting gear options for all types of hunters and continue to push the envelope. To learn more about Tethered and saddle hunting, head over to tetherednation.com. If you check out the Phantom Saddle System is what I'm using with the 8mm ropes. I have two cis haulers on each side, the Predator platform, and also the one stick. So I have the whole entire system there that I'm using. Check those out. Maven is building the highest quality optics at half the price of their competitors through their direct-to-consumer business model. They want to create the best optics for the job, period. Their products are back with a lifetime no-fault warranty and an incredible customer experience. I'm using the RF1 rangefinder now on all of my hunts from east to west. Super nice. You can use a little dial on the side to be able to adjust the brightness depending on what time of the day it is. Very simple to use, easy to range, gives you angle compensation and everything in between. You can use the coupon code EASTMEETSWEST-GIFT for a free gift with any full price optics order at mavenbuilt.com. Go Wild is a free social community built by hunters for hunters. You can join me on Go Wild today to get 10 bucks to spend on gear for just setting up your account. You keep unlocking Go Wild rewards, and you can now see my gear setups under my profile. And um, you can join in the App Store or at timetogowild.com. Use the code East Meets West to save 10% off of all of the hunting gear on their website. I had Brad, the founder, on last week's podcast. You can go back and check that out if you would like. 
All right, so on today's episode, I have Kendall Card, and I'm excited to have Kendall on here and break up a little bit of the whitetail content here to talk about a, a super adventure hunt in mountain goat hunts and have Kendall kind of break that down for us. Uh, it's it's really cool, and I also get in talking a little bit about some of his business ventures because it's he's been a part of starting some really great companies here that have, I don't know, I've, Camo Fire was the first one, as you'll hear me talk about it here, that came to mind, and and now Black Ovis and, and Crispy, the U.S. distributor here, it's, it's incredible. So I was excited to get to interview Kendall here, and I hope everyone has a chance to get out and hunt this weekend. So in Pennsylvania, this is the opening day of uh, pen, the archery bear season as well as muzzleloader. And which is crazy because we our archery bear season, I remember, I don't know, probably three, four years ago where it was only three days long in November. And then it went to a week and now we're looking at a month long archery bear season, which is really exciting. So I might try to get out and do a little bit of hunting and maybe maybe get lucky for a bear. But uh, I'll be focused on probably picking up a New York tag here soon to start hanging up on the weekends and looking at either going back to Ohio uh, again during the rut or maybe down to um, Southern West Virginia with Josh from the untamed. So looking at a couple different options to hunt mountain bucks in some different States. Um, now that I have my week of vacation left, so, and not needing to use it here in PA. So looking at some different options there, but anyways, I hope you enjoy this podcast with Kendall and have a great rest of your week. All right. We're live. Kendall card. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, man. It's good to good to be with you, Bo. Yeah, I'm glad to to get to have you on. I was able to meet you in person there, I guess a couple months ago now at the Total Archery Challenge up in Boyne and and I've heard a lot about you through Heather and just from uh, you know, watching some of your companies from afar and being a consumer of the, the products, so it's pretty awesome. Yeah, I was psyched to meet you at, uh, at that TAC in Michigan. It was a total last minute uh, for me to go to that one. John was supposed to go. Oh, no, Corey was supposed to go, but he had a, a wedding or I don't know, something came up. So I was happy to go. And first time I'd, I'd really been to Michigan outside the airports. So I loved it. I'm I'm already planning on going back to that one. Yeah, that one, that resort was beautiful. It was a nice, nice place there, kind of in the middle of nowhere in uh, mm-hmm. northern Michigan. So that was that was a lot of fun. And you, dude, you're a road warrior. I cannot believe the the journey you took to get there. And then you barely even, I, did you shoot your bow at that? Or did you just, no. you're just <laughs> taking care of business. My goodness. No, I shot. No, I don't know if I even drew back my bow, to be honest with you. I don't think I shot at all. <laughs> I walked up to the practice range. and There was a bunch of people and I was like, yeah. And I just ended up talking to people the whole time and just kind of, yeah making connections and podcasting and that was really about it so i shot at the one i shot at the one before the week before in in uh pittsburgh so i kind of had it out of me a little bit gotcha (laughs) yeah i was i was impressed man i was like this guy is for real he is dedicated most guys would not do that so i i was i was super impressed and it was really nice to meet you there in person (laughs) and chat 
Well, I'm glad you thought that because it was, uh, I was questioning myself driving there and back. I'll tell you that. <laughs> um, but anyways, Kendall, so it's the first time that you're on the show and I'd wanted to see if you just give a, a little background on yourself and also maybe why people may have either heard of you or indirectly know of you because of some of the companies that you own or are involved with. Yeah, so name's Kendall Card. I I grew up actually here in Utah. Moved to Oregon when I was young, and I grew up hunting. Got away from hunting in my kind of late teens. Got more interested in climbing mountains and skiing, and did all that sort of thing. Moved back to Utah to go to college, and uh, and then, a, gosh, it's probably fifteen years ago. Moved to a small town. Got really interested in hunting again. Uh, kind of remembered how fond I was of hunting and how much it was basically hunting was the reason why I really got into exploring the mountains. And it was what started it for me. And I feel like I've come full circle. Um, and about that time that we I moved to that small town, uh, my business partner and I, uh, Mark Strickland, he and I started camelfire.com, which uh, some guys may have heard of. And then we later started uh, Black Ovis. Um, we had a clothing company in there called Core Four Element, and ran that for a couple, three years. And then Easton decided they wanted to buy it from us, so we uh, we didn't part with it easy. We actually told them no, we're, it's not for sale. And anyway, it came back, and they they, they took over from there, it, which was good. It it got us it got us more focused back on back Black Ovis and, and getting that thing up and running. So we run both those websites, and then. About six years ago, in fact, I was looking back at some notes. Uh, in 2015, we had the opportunity to uh, take over as the North American distributor for Crispy. So we run Crispy US, and then as a separate company, and then we we're involved with Black Ovis and Camel Fire. So it was actually very interesting at that at that tack in Michigan because I had a couple guys. I I was eating breakfast. It was it, was, it actually was quite uncomfortable because one guy walked by and he looks over at me and then he looks back and then he looks back over at me and he's like, and I, and he walks back. He goes, Hey, you're the guy from black Ovis. I've seen you on YouTube. (laughs) Yeah. man. He's like, Oh, I love your stuff. And it was, that was pretty flattering, but I was like, Oh my gosh. It's just, anyone can be on YouTube. It's really pretty easy. So yeah, it's, it's funny. Cause I just, from the little that I know about you, I feel like that you don't love, uh, being on the camera, so to speak. You like the behind the scenes type of stuff. I, I don't, I don't seek it out. That's for sure. Um, I, I'm not bad at it. I, you know, uh, the guys tell me that, uh, the, the guy that films uh, all this stuff, all the, uh, product reviews here in house. He's he's always telling me that uh, that I I do most everything in one take because I I had some TV experience. Not that I was like a TV type person, but um, when I was doing before I got back into hunting, I was doing film promotion. And one of the films I, I was do, uh, promoting ski films for Teton Gravity Research, which is a big ski production company. And I did all their, all their films here in Utah. And every year I would go on Fox TV, like our local Fox TV, and then a local TV station in, uh, in Park City, Utah. And it was always live. So it was, you literally had to nail it. Yeah. And uh, I just got super comfortable behind a camera. I didn't, I don't, don't really get all that nervous. And so, uh, but I, I just soon just 
go work in the warehouse or yeah work in my office and let the rest of the guys do that but it's it, i love gear and i flat out love talking about gear so it uh the, those guys will arm wrestle me into getting in front of the camera every once in a while <laughs> uh, that makes sense it's, it's funny because so camo fire i feel like uh, i'm not sure exactly when you had started it but i remember when i was getting into western hunting which was 2016 is when i dis- i believe that's right when i discovered camo fire and i bought a lot of my gear from camo fire as i was getting started as i needed a bulk amount of stuff and i mm-hmm. needed to uh, you know keep it within a a budget of sorts and it just gave me the opportunity to do that and then and it took me a little while to realize that black ovis and camo fire had some uh connections there um because that's where i was you know buying some of my um some of my western hunting gear through black ovis then too as it went along and and then got to learn a little bit about um that both those were were your businesses and um and then going a little bit further crispy um boots i'd bought my first pair three or four years ago now the wild rocks for whitetail hunting and had been, oh that's right and you told me about that yeah i'd bought those and been using those for you know ever since and still using them for an insulated boot for whitetail hunting and i i always just i was never a big rubber boot guy and i just my feet sweat too much and where we had to walk into our stands or the trees here just they're longer walks than most of the midwest is so like you're walking in one to two miles in the mornings you know by the time i'd get there my feet would be sweating in these thousand gram insulated rubber boots with no breathability and uh so that's when i went to a lighter leather boot and then i just slide over boot covers once i got up into the tree to help add some some insulation there so anyways i started with that and when i needed a new pair of um western boots this year or as far as like lightweight early season ones and i ended up picking up a pair of the colorados and then recently now the got some thors that i'm that i've been trying out that i think is going to be my uh early season white tail slash scouting slash turkey boot <laughs> dude welcome to the family sounds like you got a quiver going on yeah there. they just they, when i find a boot that fits when you find a company that like fits your feet and then they hold up and the quality is there like there's there's no reason for me to to really look other places because it's too it's too big of a too big of a gamble so it's it's just yeah. it uh it works out well, thanks for uh, thanks for being a customer of all three businesses, all <laughs> yeah. three websites. That's awesome. <laughs> I didn't know, and I think there's a lot of guys like like you that either they get into hunting and 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 they they face like I got to get all this stuff. And if you were to go buy it at full pop, you'd be five six G before you're if you really were trying to go like A to Z. You know, so Camel Fire. I think there's a lot of guys that do that. They'll they'll find camel fire and they'll just kind of go hog wild. And then they'll kind of, you know, pick, pick up items here and there, you know, a year or two, three later, et cetera. But yeah. Um, like a, a local, uh, in fact, a guy that, that I used to backcountry ski with, and he was, a he was a mountain bike racer. Um, he just messaged me a couple months ago and said, Hey, you're still doing that camo stuff. Cause I'm, I'm getting into hunting. Really? And, and I was like, yeah. And he said, I've been, and he started picking up stuff off camel fire. And he said, it's, it's, it's been a great way for him to kind of get into hunting without getting crushed from a gear standpoint. Uh, so yeah, we hear that a lot. That's, that's cool. I'm glad that you found us. 
Yeah. And it's, it's funny. Like what I've learned is like the first hunt that I went on out West was a backpack elk hunt. And I think like if I were to give any advice to someone else that was starting out brand new, I would start with like a truck camping hunt. So you don't need to buy everything at one Mm -hmm. time. You know, there's some things you can skimp out on there to get you through on a lower budget, but still get to hunt. And then if you want to do the, the full backpack hunt type, then you can kind of piece that together over time. I think the backpack, the backpack hunt sounds so uh, romantic. It's not not like in love romantic, but so like idealistic. Yeah. And a lot of guys, you know, think, man, that's that's how I want to do it. Which is, I aspire. You know, it's a good aspiration. But I I would agree a hundred percent. If you're coming out west for your first or second or even third time, like hone your skill as a hunter and and take away the the backpacking portion of it that that just i think complicates or adds a, a level of complexity where i think i think remember i talked to a couple of guys and they said they spent more time trying to figure out the backpacking stuff and less time actual hunting and they were trying to just get into these these basins um and they had a blast and i remember talking to them on the trail when i was in colorado and but they i i felt bad for them because literally they didn't they, they hunted just a couple of the days and they ended up trying to figure out how to set up camp, where to move camp, moving, you know, from the A to B to C location. And, uh, like, well, you guys got a good backpacking experience. That's for certain. But yeah, I felt bad. They didn't get any good hunting in. Yeah, I know. I, I, to be honest with you, I mean, now if I, you know, whenever I do an elk hunt again, um, most likely I won't be doing a backpack hunt. I found that afterwards I went back to truck camping and being more mobile and I felt like I was more effective that way and being able to jump around different places. It's all dependent on what you want out of it. But, mm-hmm. um, totally. for me, I just, I, I liked that style quite a bit, but, um, for my mule deer hunt this year, it'll be, you know, fully backpack. So that's, um, well, and, at least for the the first part of it, there is our plan. So, yeah, the back the backpacking for mule deer. I I've I've only done a couple of overnight, you know, multi night for elk. Almost all my elk hunting is from a base camp. Then we'll kind of starfish into a zone and then move camp. You know, drive the truck twenty miles or thirty miles and jump in a different zone. Yep. Um, based on pressure, but my mule deer hunting that I do is almost exclusively backpack style. And I don't know why, maybe it's just the, the deer seem to kind of hang out in some of the similar basins. I don't feel like I got to travel a ton, but, um, and, and I mean, I would think that like, you know, to be able to see them in the high country, you have to be up there higher where you can find mm -hmm. elk, you know, a lot of times, you know, in the timber and different spots there. So it'd be, it'd be a rough walk all the way up to the high country every morning, unless there was access that was up high. Man, (laughs) wouldn't it? It'd be be horrible. You'd be in killer shape. That's for sure. At the end of it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's so true. Um, so I think it's kind of self-explanatory that you've just loved the mountains because even when you weren't into hunting, like you were doing other sports that were s- surrounded by being, being in the mountains, but did what, I guess, what part of that, like those mountain hunts and things like that, that really draw you to it? I, I think, well, it's interesting. I, I'm drawn to hard hunts and I, and I think I really like rugged country 
Um, because like you were saying, I, I, I've done a lot of mountain climbing, alpine rope climbing, um, a little bit of big wall climbing, um, in an alpine setting, um, a lot of backcountry skiing, uh, ski mountaineering where I go and climb, you know, some peak and ski down a little chute, done a bunch in the Tetons and, and I really just love the, the ruggedness of the mountains. I love being away from kind of the normal pathways. And so mountain hunting, you know, when I, when I got into bow hunting and into hunting, uh, again, um, it just seemed like that was, that was what was fulfilling already to me. And so the harder, the better. And cause I like testing my physical body and I love the idea of the elements kind of raging against you, if you will. I mean, it's never, I mean, you never go on a hunt and think, Oh, I hope it just nukes, you know, yeah. 80 mile an hour winds and I just get dumped on. But I remember this one time, and I think this clicked for me when I was a ski instructor uh, on Mount Hood. I was, a, I was a ski instructor through high school and college here in Utah. I was, went to college and was taught skiing. But I remember this one time being up on the mountain and I'd, I'd climbed part of Mount Hood to then ski down. And I remember it was just howling. And I thought, I want to be... I want to be up here and survive everything that mother nature can, can throw at me. And I thought, what an amazing thing it is to have like rad gear or gear that performs and to be able to survive and thrive in, in this kind of area. So take that. And I've always thought about that. And I think about that all often. So bring that over to mountain hunting. It's, it's cool to be in these places where I'm confident I, I push boundaries. Um, I push my personal limits and other people may be like, Oh, that's not that hard. You know, a particular hunt that I go on, but for me, it's, you know, I'm pushing my own limits and that that's rewarding. And, uh, and I like the challenge and the physical aspect, as long as my physical body can continue to do, do well, I'm grateful for it. And I'm grateful for the strength I have. And, and, you know, I mean, genetically speaking, there's a zillion things that go wrong with our bodies, but I'm glad that mine's healthy. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, it, it's, it's awesome. I, I look forward to it all year long. Every time I go to the gym, I run, I sight, you know, I road bike, I think, man, I, this is going to be, this is, this is preparation for going into the mountains and going into rough country. Yeah. It's, it's, funny to me like I, I remember the first time that i went out there that like out west and hunted the mountains and how i thought i was in good shape and then realized that you really probably never are in the best shape that you want to be for it so like for me it just it just fueled me every year just to try to be better because it makes your hunt more enjoyable when you're mm -hmm. able to to climb up through there and you, you know you have to push through those mental barriers no matter what but it's just like i want to be you know feeling as good as possible and confident. It's more of building up your mental confidence than anything that, okay, there's a deer elk or whatever might be all the way over there. And I have to drop down a couple thousand feet and up the other side, but you have that confidence that you can do it rather than it just being like a drag the whole time. <laughs> yeah. Or, or, or talking later and saying, well, there was that one buck or there was that one, whatever. And I, he looked good, but I was just, he was a long ways out and then, which is, you know, that, uh, that's just, that's just an excuse. Yeah. You know I mean, it's uh, like, 
I, you either had it in you or you didn't. And it just, it is what it is. Yeah. And you wait all year for these opportunities. I mean, like, I mean, even with you living out West, I mean, you're obviously super busy with all your businesses. It's not like you get to hunt every day. So like you cherish no. those moments that you do get to go in the mountains and want to, you know, want to be prepared for the, the best chance possible. Yeah. Like my, my hunting partner in Colorado, he, uh, he lives he lives in the same town as I live in, um, small town here in Utah. And and I remember I was like I was begging to go on this hunt with him. And he is like, No, I've got this other buddy and him and his and he had two friends. And I remember he told he would he would come back from the hunts and I I was like, dude, you gotta I wanna come with you. Um he's like, No, you know, and I was like, Well, I'm elk hunting. But I remember him coming back from two or three hunts in a row. And one of them, he came home early and he said that he perched up on one side of this drainage and the other two guys were on the other side of this drainage, big faces, you know, Colorado, a couple thousand feet to the bottom. And they were kind of glassing back and forth. And, and he said that they would, they would check, you know, do like a radio check once a day and say, Hey, like, Hey, there's some movement over here. Cause you, you, you can't take uh, you can't radio like in people in, in Colorado. And so he, uh, I remember him saying that after two or three days, it was kind of rainy and it was, you know, tough. And one of the guys radioed on a morning said, Hey, I'm, I'm done. I'm not interested in hunting anymore. And I'm out. And that happened to him two years in a row. And he basically had to bail because these guys were his ride. And I remember just telling him like, man, I, like you got to trust me. I can. <laughs> I'll weather any storm. And mentally, it's tough when you get six, five, four, three, you know, seven days in, and you're, you know, it's discouraging, and whatnot. But uh, it's not for everybody. But it'll certainly test your resolve. And I've, I've gotten spanked, you know, physically and mentally. And but I, I remember him just coming back so discouraged. He prepared all year, and this is the one hunt he goes on every year just to have his, his buddies basically, you know, turn tail two or three days in. Yeah. No, that, that would be absolutely terrible to, to deal with that. I mean, I feel like I've been lucky with my hunting partners up to this point that they've all been really good and we've been able to mesh on, on hunts. And I, I have one on some that have been less than ideal, but not anything, you know, <laughs> crazy. So like now I have a set group of guys that I can go with, you know, there's, three people really that I can count on anytime. And like, I don't want to stray away from it. I don't want to, I don't want to have the, the chance, the chance it really. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't have, you know, but a few and, and it's always hard to, to mix schedules, but uh, yeah. Oh yeah. That's, that's definitely difficult. And I, I noticed. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was last year you had went on a mountain goat hunt in Alaska and I, you went with Tim Burnett, didn't you? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So Tim's, Tim's an awesome guy. I love his stuff that he puts out and he was actually one of my first guests on the podcast cast about three years ago. Heck yeah. Um, that's awesome. Yeah. So really great guy. I admire what he does. And, uh, so you'd went up to Alaska with him, but before we kind of get into that story, I want to hear how that hunt kind of came to be. Is that your first time doing mountain goats or what, what does that look like? So it, it was supposed to be my first time doing mountain goats. Um, Tim and I had been talking and, uh, that was, so that was 2020 when we, so probably early on 29, 
2019. It might have been during the trade show time, January, February. And we got talking about bucket list items. I think I was out at the at the sheep show in Reno. And I said, man, I want to go on a mountain going hunt. He's like, I want to go on a mountain bow hunt. And, and he he called me uh, just a couple weeks later, said, hey, we can get in on a mountain go hunt this year, like a two-for-one. And the the one thing about the a two for one is they're 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 cheaper because you're you know two hunters with one guide, but it's it, the the you also reduce the possibility of both of you filling your tags. So it's a little bit of a gamble, but from a dollars and cents standpoint, it was I was like, man, I I'm definitely down for that. And uh, so we were kind of tr- we were trying to piece it together, and I said, no, nah, let's just go in 2020. Um, you know, I want to be able to put it because usually when you commit to a hunt like that, you're, you're putting a down payment, you know, a couple thousand dollars or whatever. And then you can, depending on the guide or outfit, you can kind of work out like, Hey, I'm going to pay you X amount every quarter, you know, every three months or whatever the case would be. Usually they'll say, Hey, just two payments or three payments, but you can then start budgeting a little bit. Yeah. Um, but we both were like, we're all in, we're going to do this hunt. It's going to be awesome. Um, he, uh, so we, I was, and I already, I mean, Tim and I have been friends for a few years and, and I, I knew that I was going to enjoy the time with him in the mountains. So, uh, we put that on the calendar and then fast forward to 2020, I drew, I drew my once in a lifetime mount going here in Utah for last for 2020. And it was an archery, it was an archery hunt. And Tim and I had agreed that we wanted to shoot mountain goats in Alaska with our bows. So while that was supposed to be my first mountain go hunt, it ended up being my second. All in one year. <laughs> yeah. So I had both, I had two mountain goat hunts, both archery in, uh, in 2020. And it was absolutely amazing. Well, before we go into the stories, those, I want to step back for a second. And, and so like, I, I don't think I've talked about any, any mountain goat hunts up until this point. And, one of the things, you know, most of the stuff I've talked about has been elk and deer and some, some caribou up in Alaska and things. And, you know, I'd always, when I first got into Western hunting, I thought that was like something that was out of reach, you know, from a financial standpoint and just everything that goes along with those type of hunts. And then what I've come to learn is that with proper planning and everything else is how you can work those things in. It just takes takes time to be able to, you know, prepare for it and, and understand that, okay, you have your goal set and you want to do a mountain goat hunt. You just got to make sure you're ready. Well, mostly financially. Would you agree with that? Yeah, hundred percent. There were guys, there were, you know, no disrespect to any of the other hunters that, that I, you know, ran into both in the airport in Alaska or in, uh, in camp, uh, not in our camp, but in, in, uh, you know, the couple guys, other guys that were going hunting and there were guys of all different walks and, and age ages too. And, and it's certainly, you know, sheep is a whole different ball game from a dollar standpoint. Um, but a mountain goat, I think, I think it's a doable kind of bucket list hunt. If, if you really want to mix mountain, hunting with an elusive you know uh, species that's super rewarding so i would i i too felt like uh this is it's totally out of my reach and part of the reason why tim and i decided we'd do it is because i didn't think i was going to draw my once in a lifetime goat hunt 
here in Utah for another 10 to 15 years. I, <laughs> I was like, I'm going to be 60, but you know, 60, 65 before I draw this thing. And so Tim and I were like, we should, we should get this out of the way before we're any older. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's, that's hilarious that you drew them both and, oh, you drew the one the same time you were planning this other, this other hunt. And, yeah. and, but yeah, I and I have learned learned that like from looking into it that mountain goat hunts are a lot more affordable than a sheep hunt. You know, I kind of put them in one bucket at one point until I actually looked into it and realized there's actually a pretty sizable gap in, you know, going on a mountain goat hunt versus a sheep hunt from a a dollar's perspective. And Yeah, you can get a good you can get a uh, I mean, the price, the range is quite quite a bit, but you know, anywhere from that probably in the five, 6,000 on the low end to 12 or 13 on the high end, depending on who you go with. If you draw a tag versus buying a tag, uh, you know, if you buy, if you draw in Alaska, you have to hire a guide. That's just part of the deal. Um, you know, so it's, you kind of say, well, if, if, if you're, let's say you're 35, you're like, I want to do a goat hunt and you know, you, you, you set a date 10 years. Can you save, you know, 10 grand in 10 years, uh, you know, scratching and yeah, you totally could. I mean, I, I think that's within reason for most people that have a, a, you know, a good job. So yeah, even, even if you don't, man, you could, if you really want it bad enough, you'll, you'll, you could find a way for that. Now a doll sheep hunt for 25 or 30 grand. That's, you know, that's, 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 uh, that's a whole different ball game. Yeah. You're going to have to do some different things to, to be oh, able yeah. to, you know, whether you're having side businesses or whatever you're you're doing, you know, a, a lot of when I, when I'd started the, the podcast and when I real, cause at first it wasn't really a plan from a, a financial standpoint. And once I realized that that was a possibility, it was like, okay, I can, make these hunts happen by doing some work on the side outside of my day job and being able to go to these different things. And there's so many different ways I've heard of guys doing it, you know, that got into real estate and some other different, you know, side ventures to be able to fund these different things. And, and for others, it might just be cutting out some of the luxury items that instead of buying a new truck every you know, three years is being able to drive one a little bit longer and using that money and putting it into a different account. There's, there's a bunch of different ways that you could, you know, save up for that. Yeah. And it, it, you know, they're not, you know, because you don't hunt them every year and because most people never get to hunt them or very few people hunt them once in their life, it's not talked about or highlighted a lot. It doesn't make for great, like, you know, film. I, I remember talking to Tim, and he, and Ian talking to Brian call as well. And, and both of them have told me, you know, their episodes that do that their, their episodes that are deer or elk get far more views than the, the New Zealand tar and chamois and the, and the mountain goat and the bear hunts and all that, you know, because deer and elk is where it's at. But the, I think a mount, mount goat hunt is definitely within reach of, of anyone that, that, that wants to. And to have a cool adventure, especially in Alaska, um, God, man, Alaska is so legit. Like if you haven't been to Alaska to hunt, I think, I think you got to put it on the, on your short radar. Yeah, I know. After going there last year, when I went there for caribou last year, I'm like, I need to find a way to make it back to Alaska more often than not. 
it's just it's amazing <laughs> amen i that's my uh, i just told my wife said hon just plan on me going to alaska about every third year yeah. it's <laughs> it is a magical place it's rough it's just super cool the people when you get in these small small villages and towns are just total salt of the earth gritty hard people you know they live a life that's so much different than ours uh from just the little stuff is is often comes at a higher cost uh, not just financially but it's it's cool i i could really get used to going there on the regular oh yeah i know i i'm already planning another caribou hunt back there in a few years taking my dad and my brother and you know some others i want to show this experience that they can you know just to hunt in alaska and then i'm looking at you know what's next that i can do you know maybe a little further out and looking at i want to hunt moose really bad and like figuring out those types of Mm -hmm. of hunts and just yeah after going to alaska it spoiled me one there's the hunting pressures, you know, we didn't see anybody the whole time we were there. And, you know, after being out West where it can be sometimes crowded, it's, uh, it's just a whole different experience. Yeah. Not seeing another human, you know, Tim and I, we, we, I was our guide. And then there was an assistant guide, uh, kind of the Sherpa West. He was a total stud, but I mean, the four of us for, you know, better part of a week plus that, and that's it. Not even, I mean, I remember we saw a ship way out in this, uh, out in the water. Um, and that was as close to human contact as we got. And it was, it was amazing. Yeah. So tell, tell me a little bit about that hunt. Like what, what kind of hunt was it? Were you flying into a place? Were you hiking into a place? What did it look like? So, uh, so we went with, um, Lonesome Dove Outfitters, uh, out of, uh, Cordova, Alaska, and they're really cool, just super good people. And uh, our guide was actually, I thought our outfitter was going to be our guide, but it wasn't. It was a guy named Adam that ended up guiding us. Um, and it was, uh, so we flew to Anchorage, met, uh, Tim and I met there and in the airport. And then we flew to Cordova, which is just a short, short flight south. Um, and then from Cordova, we actually flew north again in a, in a float plane we almost didn't get out and then the weather was iffy and then the float plane's like, no, nope, we're not going. And it was like, yep. Get your, and then literally it was like, get your stuff, get down to the airfield in like 20 minutes or something. And, uh, we just rallied, um, got on the float plane, flew us in. Um, and, and so we flew into a float destination right on the shore, on the shore in this inlet, um, the guide and this, the two guides had been there, um, I think they were in, they went in the previous day or two, set up a, one of those big, like, uh, uh, base tents, not a wall tent, but just a big tent had two of them there for us. And we landed, um, and then, so that was the access. And then it was, it was hike up to the Alpine and then, then hunt from there. But we had, had that base camp, um, pretty cool experience. I mean, we're flying in, seeing goats. I'm like, let's land right here. Yeah. <laughs> and, and no, you know, the pilot was super cool and the, those those bush pilots, I don't know about your experience, um, but they're they're hardy folk and they're just good dudes and they've seen it all and they've yeah. I mean that that's their that's their work. They're so not easily it. excitable, which is good. No, you know, super it's, mellow. Yeah. They're just <laughs> all right, here we're gonna buzz over here. Yep. You know, and it just it, it was cool. It was a really cool experience. Oh, that's that that yeah, the whole bush plane 
idea of it. Like when I was in Alaska, it was one of my favorite parts of that entire experience getting shoved into one of those little planes and, you know, just going in. Oh, you're flying so low over these places and you land like, I mean, you were in a float, you know, float plane, but we had the big tundra tires on and just mm-hmm. land on these like creek bottom, rocky little sandbars i'm like are you serious you know it's where we're gonna land and boom right in there and it's insane. and it come in slow like i i've done a bush i've done a couple bush plane flights in alaska before and and man the where you're it's true you're like you're landing there yeah I'm, i remember what like another ch- on on another situation the guy he was like i think the pilot can fly up here and pick up all of our gears you know because there's a bad storm coming and like where's he gonna land? He's like, oh, he'll he'll figure it out. If if the wind's coming this way, he'll land here, and if it's coming that way, he'll land there. Yeah, and they just they buzz up. All right, I got like through two minutes, and I gotta get out of here. This you know, yeah, before the wind changes. Like, okay, yep, <laughs> <laughs> pretty nuts. It's but it's it that that's part of the experience that's so unique uh, that I I flat out loved. Um, you know, on the return after the hunt when. When the planes came in, we had two planes came and picked us up because again we were they were expecting like eighty knot winds and just this gnarly storm of storms that was supposed to come in. Um, and the two planes came in and we flew out actually a different route instead of going over the mountains. We flew out into the o- above the ocean and flew a, a different route back to Cordova. Um, and just what a cool just situation to be able to to I mean I just pinched myself. Yeah. I thought that, it's worth every penny, every penny. Yeah, definitely. So once you got there, explain kind of a little bit about like, you know, how long were you planning on being there? And what, what did that look like? So that, that was because our guides were already gone in. Um, it was just Tim and I flying in. So I didn't have really any, the outfitter took us over to the, to the little airstrip uh, where we jumped on in the float plane. And so we didn't, we didn't really have any, idea of what was going to go down i thought well we'll probably land and then just chill out here for a while and then you know saunter up the the mountain the next day but we landed and you know took all our stuff off and and said all right you guys are in that tent over there so tim and i piled all our gear in there and i i knew that we we were going to be at base camp so i brought a few extra items i was kind of you know one of those well i could take this or this i'm not sure which one i use so i'm like i'll take both um, and there were, yeah. there were weight limitations, but, but they, you know, so I had a, I had more gear than I ended up needing. Um, but we got there and I, I was expecting just, all right, we're going to hang on a hang tight and we'll get some food. And literally we got there, got settled in. And then one guy comes over and he goes, Hey, we're taking off in about an hour. So just get, get packed up and we're going to hike up to the Alpine. And it was like, Tim and I looked at each other all right, man, it's go time. Let's get yeah. going. You know, like I got an hour to, to get everything like ready, ready. And so we, um, the other cool thing that, that I hadn't anticipated is, uh, we were going to climb about 3000 feet up to, uh, up to where these, uh, the goats were, were hanging. And, uh, and they had, they had kind of, they, they gave us a little bit of insight to where, where we're going to be. Um, but what I had a picture to my mind definitely didn't turn out to be what it was. Cause, uh, like go hiking up through the forest. Um, couple of things that I, that are worth mentioning. Number one is I, as we brought crampons along and the crampons were not for traveling through snow, but for simply going up the vegetated slopes. 
because the slopes were so dang steep and there was literally no way to get up and down them safely without crampons on. Uh, so that was super unique. Something I never thought I would do. Yeah. Um, and it was, it was burly. I mean, it was, you know, kind of roly poly for a little bit and then just, it just shot straight up. Um, the second thing that was really cool was, um, the guy, like just, we ate, I ate so many dang blueberries. I probably consumed, I don't know, hundred dollars worth of blueberries from a grocery store <laughs> if, if I was buying them. But you, the guide, instead of picking individual blueberries off the big blueberry bushes, he would just, he would break a limb and then just eat them like, you know, just <laughs> without even picking them off, just eat them, uh, you know, with his mouth. And so uh, I, Tim and I looked at each other and I remember just like, all right, guess we're going to do what the guides do. So it, it was literally a buffet as we're climbing up this mountainside. Um, and those, that was really cool. Yeah. We, it took us a little while we got up. It was just spectacular coming out of those forests. Uh, the Devil's Club wasn't really that bad. I know people always talk about how gnarly it is. In that particular area, we didn't have to deal with that. So thankfully, my gear didn't get you know ripped to shreds like I've heard yeah. horror stories about. Um, but we got up above uh, above uh, above the timberline, and I thought, oh, let's just we're gonna camp right here. And they're like, higher, like we're going way high. And we went up, and we ended up. I mean, I'm looking at all these spots thinking, oh, this is a, this is a great place to camp. We should camp right here, yeah. at this base and that base. And, and I, they took us clear to the dang top of this mountain. And we were just under kind of the, maybe a few, couple hundred feet under the summit on this little teeny perch. And, uh, and it was stormy. And I'm, t- I'm like, there's no, and they already had one tent set up. And I'm like, there's no way we're going to fit a tent in there. So Tim, Tim said, Tim convinced me to set up our tent on this gravel bar and you literally, with how much moisture there was, you could dig down about three inches. And then that was the water table in this little gravel. So you didn't want to like kneel too heavy, like in the ground. Cause like it would, the water would seep up. But so we're, we're, we ended up on this kind of little perch on the side of this peak overlooking this giant Valley, uh, some glaciers across the other side hanging glaciers and then we could see we had bumped into a, a like a billy on the way up um and then uh and then we had this little bit of a peak above us and then these two valleys behind well a zillion valleys and zillion peaks but what we could see was just uh, i was already just awestruck at how beautiful and how rugged it was yeah so how how do you navigate that type of terrain when it's that at least what i have in my mind like i'm picturing just like strictly like rock type country is that what it was like when we got up there you it was above timberline it was probably about 50 percent rock and 50 percent um like just kind of that tundra vegetation yep um and sometimes it was you know you're going up just steep like you know we would add a camp out of our high camp we would put crampons on right out of camp because we had to go up a couple of steep grassy slopes and traverse this this pretty steep hill before we got around to the shale and the and the all the all the rock and it was it was literally like you slip and fall and you may not arrest yourself for a thousand feet um and not that we were like like at risk of dying or anything but it was there were some spots that you you wouldn't be able to stop yourself just because it was like that uh, that slick grass or tundra, mm-hmm. um, and the blueberries up there were all ground blueberries rather than a plant that was growing you know like waist or chest high. 
Yeah. Um, so we would still like, I was snacking blueberries still left and blueberry. right. Oh man. <laughs> that just became like my deal. Every time we'd sit down and be like, Oh, there's some blueberries. Yeah. And, uh, they were telling us that the blueberry harvest was extraordinarily good that year. But so we, we were about 50% rock and 50%, uh, on, on vegetation, but there was, there were times where, where we were in the middle of what I would call a moonscape. It was just zero vegetation. Like where Tim shot his goat, um, it was it was straight up moonscape. Was it t- was it tough to find goats once you were up in that country? Uh, not not so much. Um, you, you know, we we did a lot of hiking. The first day, we we simply just hiked around. And the and what was interesting is, like you and I go, like if we go hunting, like when I'm when I'm hunting, it's game time, and I'm like, all right, there's an animal, let's go kill it. And these guys, the guides were so super patient. They were just like, no, we got time. So on the first day, we, after, I mean, our second day, we spent the entire day basically just kind of sussing out what goats were where, uh, because the goats are white and most of the, most of the, the hillside didn't have snow on it. They were pretty easy to pick out. Um, but there were also goats tucked into real nooks and crannies that we definitely had to go search out tons of glassing that those first two days um but they weren't terribly hard to pick out but they certainly were not an easy to get to locations most of them that we found yeah with a bow too like <laughs> yeah and i i remember the guide afterwards uh he said he goes man i didn't know you he goes i i thought that dennis was crazy for booking a two-on-one that were both archery and I remember him saying, you know, I got this gun here because he would carry a gun both for protection as well as uh, just insurance in case like one of us made a real poor shot. Uh, let's say, you know, it had, had we made a poor shot and the animal was wounded, you know, and got out to a couple hundred yards, we could we could take care of it and, and still harvest the, the yeah. goat. But but uh, yeah, I was starting to I was I mean, I, you know, I feel pretty confident in my abilities in the mountains and as a bow hunter. But I, there were times where I thought, man, I, I don't know, this is going to happen. Like both of us with our bows, this is, it's the country you deal with. And then these, these goats, they're both mountain goats are both skittish and curious. They're, they're, they're much like, you know, like, uh, like antelope in that way that they're real skittish, but, but they also get real curious and, and that's. I saw both behaviors, uh, where, where mountain, go- when, they, when the mountain goats would see us, they would absolutely just like bolt for the next County. Um, whereas others would kind of just kind of look at us and walk towards us a little bit and like, what the heck is going on with that? What is that? Yeah. Um, so really an interesting combination of both, both, uh, personalities. Huh? Yeah, that, that is, that is interesting. And, and when, when you would, were there goats like that you just absolutely couldn't get to or did you have to like kind of plan that out as far as like which ones were accessible i'm just trying to picture that in my head how that would work 100 percent. there were these there were these two really nice billies and a handful of nannies that were uh and and a couple kids that were over across the valley from us so we would have had if you imagine the where the peak we're on we had would have had to go like a horseshoe um to the other side of the horseshoe. And if you were to go down and up, it would be like 3000 feet down through the most gnarly gnar yeah. and then up. And I remember looking at that up thinking there's, there's no way I could even get over there. 
because there were cliffs, Im- impassable cliffs. And, and uh, I remember seeing a couple of shoots thinking, oh, maybe we could scamper up that. But I remember as we, we went about halfway around that horseshoe, maybe two-thirds of the way around the horseshoe to an, a little sub-peak, kind of a little nipple-looking peak that was over in, in that to look into the next two valleys. And we were over there scouting, and I remember telling the guide, like, hey, man, there's those, those goats are still over there, like on that snow field and around the corner from that little glacier. And he's, he, he essentially was, he just said, no, we're not even there. We can't get over there. I'm like, no, no, I think we can, yeah. you know, here's the, the client like, yeah. like, no, I know better. But, and that's, you know, I'm like, no, nah, man, I, I think, you know, cause I'm in my mind, I'm scheming. Uh, if that goat's huntable or if that goat's one I want to take, I'm going to find a way to get over there and kill that thing. Um, but that it was, it was absolutely impassable. There just really wasn't a way unless you wanted to spend couple of days circumnavigating the peak and coming in from the other side. So there, there were goats that I saw. I remember, you know, glassing over to this other base and then I'm like, Hey, there's some goats over there. And he goes, stop looking over there. Cause we can't get there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, okay. But it's curious to know there's some goats over there. Yeah. Um, in case you're wondering. So cer- certainly some that just, you just had to ride off. Um, but as the, as the time went on, uh, I think, Adam recognized that that Tim and I, you know, came willing and, and able to 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 work hard and to yeah. go as far as it takes. And I remember one, two, two particular goats that on the day that I was able to harvest, he uh when I killed my goat, they were clear down this ridge, like way down, dropping maybe fifteen hundred vertical feet and probably a th- two and a half mile length. Cause it was out this far, far Ridge. And I remember, uh, he, I said, man, if we need to, if we can't find any more goats, like those things look legit. And he goes, we're just going to kind of put that one in the back pocket. And he, and he just was like, I don't know, man, that is a long ways out there. Mm-hmm. Cause, Cause we were day hunting from, from the, the high camp. We weren't, we weren't hunting with our packs on with our full pack and all yeah. the gear on our back. Gotcha. Yeah. And I'm sure navigating that kind of country at night just isn't a good idea. Yeah, it's rough. So interestingly is, is the, the guide actually had a deadline. He said, he basically said, I won't let a bow hunter shoot after I want to say either three 30 or four 30. Um, and cause he said, I don't, a, I don't want to work. I don't want to fiddle around with the recovery like into the night. And he said, B, I don't like hiking back in the dark. And, and I don't know about you, like where you hunt, you know, for whitetail, I'm sure you've walked out in the dark plenty. Um, yeah. Every where, time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like I, I hunt, I've uh, my, my poor friend, Justin, he, I mean, he's gotten, you know, multiple calls at 10, 11 at night. When I get back to cell service, Hey man, I got an elk down. Want to come help me pack yeah. out because I will hunt in here in Utah. I'll hunt till I'll hunt till after dark. And then I'll just, I'll walk out. I know I'm confident in the country and I know confident in my skills, you know, getting around in the mountains and even in the dark. So I, I kind of had that mindset, like, you know, Adam, you guided up here. Like we all have compass, you know, we have GPSs. Why wouldn't you just, why don't we just stay out here and hunt? And then we'll hike back in the dark. And he, he was, he was pretty like, that was kind of one of the codes that he lived by. And, and so it was not, um, you know, when one night we did actually come back in the dark and he didn't have, I don't think he had his GPS with him or something had gone wrong. And I happened to have the tra and it was clouded in no stars. 
and I had done a track. I had tracked myself on on my Garmin um, Phoenix, mm-hmm. and and uh, I remember saying, "Oh yeah, I I ran a tracker like for the first half of today." Uh, and I said, "I I I we can just follow it." And then we were going up through this face that had like a pile of cliffs, and if you got too far like to the hikers' right, it would have been like you fall, you die kind of world. Um, and we had to go left. And then when we got to the, to the summit Ridge, go down to the right into the saddle and on the backside is where our camp was. And I remember him, I looked at the tracker and I said, dude, we're, we're off. I think we need to be over there. And he goes, no, I said, man, I, I don't mean to try and tell you, I told you so, but I think, I think we need to be over there. And so after the hunt, he goes, Hey, how do I get one of those watches that you yeah. have? <laughs> because it saved our bacon and and even a guide that was super experienced. And that guy was a total animal. He was he was an awesome, awesome guide. Even he, you know, yeah, we had we had a bit of an in- adventure there in the dark coming back one night. Oh, I, I can imagine that would be sketchy to say the least. Um so what <laughs> yeah. So once once you found uh, the goat that you were going in after, kind of walk me through that that process of trying to close the deal on these animals. No, so we um, Tim had killed his goat, I think on day three or four, and we had a couple days left. Um, and we looked across this valley, this big valley, um, to this this far ridge, and we'd seen a few couple of goats over there. And so we, and so we kind of went down off the, off the main horseshoe ridge that we were on, that we had camped near. And we went, went down and up to this, we call it, he called it the, the, this bear ridge. It was kind of this intermediate ridge between these two long, like ridges that were, I don't know, a couple, three miles apart. Um, Mm -hmm. And we glassed up two nice billies and they, and then in that same basin, we thought there were three other billies. And then we figured as we got closer later in the day, it was, it was two young billies and, a, and an old nanny. Um, and the two billies that we had glassed went up and over the backside. And I remember him saying, I remember the guide saying, um, well, I, I don't, I've never taken clients over there. Um, so I, I dubbed that area, I called it Narnia. Um, <laughs> he's like, we don't go to Narnia. And I said, well, I'm, I want to kill one of those goats and that's the best prospects we have. Like, let's go. So we saddled up and Tim and I, and Adam took off West had actually, he'd gone down to our base camp cause we'd run out of some food. We were almost out of food. So he had gone down. So he wasn't hunting with us that day. So we went over and imagine basically we're transferring from one horseshoe down through a valley over a small Ridge and then up to another like horseshoe, um, and we start on one side of it and we have to wrap around over a peak and then basically follow a long, real rugged Ridge. Um, and you know, I, I kind of think about some of the, my, my previous experiences in the mountains, uh, climbing and backpacking and, and, and skiing. And, and I looked at some of this terrain and I thought, I just, I just was excited, but I remember looking back at some of the pictures thinking, and that was pretty rugged. That was, that was I was out there a bit. And so anyway, we got, we got out to the end of this Ridge end of the horseshoe and look over the other side. And, and those two billies are nowhere to be found. We saw a nanny with a kid got pinned down by a small billy, um, as we were kind of peeking over the other side. So we kept working our way out. And at the very end of the horseshoe, it, uh, there was a little saddle and it went up to this, this perch, this little point, um, 
And maybe when we got up on the top of that, we, we, so we climbed up the top of that and I kid you not, this thing is probably about as big around as a, as a good sized dining room table. Um, and it just sheer, like just straight down on all, on all three sides and up on the very top of that, there's some bear scat, like a bear had climbed up on the top of this thing, munched on some, some berries and just like perched himself out. I was I'm like, Tim, you got to come up here. Like, look at this. And we were just like, just blown away. So we're glassing all three sides, looking for these billies. Couldn't find them. Um, kind of getting a little discouraged. We found another na- a couple of nannies. And then we could see like all the way out Narnia. There was all, there were, there were some other billies way out there. And it was far too far for us to go on a day hunt. So we, we backtracked and we got up on this, this little face, like, you know, the grass is like, you know, maybe three inches high. So there's no cover. And we're looking over the side and we glass back and there's, we see a Billy down in this next Valley with all we can see is his head sticking out and he looks pretty good size. And he looks like, Oh, maybe it's a smaller of the two. And he absolutely pegs us and, and we're all laying there. And then he would kind of look away and we'd just inch our way down. So I inched my way down first and then he would look back and we, and I'm like, what the crap? <laughs> he was probably about 300 yards away, 350. Um, and so the three of us, it took us 45 minutes to cover basically about 50 yards to get back out of sight. We pitched around the, around the, that little uh, end of the horseshoe and where I was, we were getting ready to go on this stock. Um, uh, our guide, Adam, he was wearing these coal flack, uh, like hard plastic mountaineering boots. And, uh, and I said, Adam, there's no way we're making it down this, this slope in any sort of like, cause it's all shale and kind of loose. So there's no way we're going to make it down. if, if you're in those boots and he's like, yeah, I know. I'm like, I'm sorry, bro, but you got to take those things off. And so he ditched his, uh, his, his shells and he was just running his liners and we, we stalked down this slope dry and, and i convinced them i said let's just leave our packs up here because they're going to be heavy i don't think we're going to you know we're going to be like kind of you know when you have a heavy pack you're overcorrecting. Yep. it's hard to get footing you're especially in shell you're going to be louder and go deeper into the into the loose rock so we go down uh we make our way down we lift our packs up on the top i said if we don't if, if nothing comes of this we've got to go back up anyways to to leave this valley so we make it down there kind of sneaking over to where his last, we last had seen him and we kind of poke around this corner and the guy's like, he's going to be right here. And like, poof, he, nothing there. I'm like, dang it. And, and I'm thinking, and I'm like, no, he's going to be around this next corner. So Tim's in my back pocket, Adam's to my left. You know, I've got an arrow knocked and I, I, we're just sneak. I mean, we're just sneaking around and we pop around this corner and I see him. And, and all of a sudden, he's basically about 20 yards from us. He spins and goes around the backside of his knob. And without even the guide, you know, because you, when, you're, when you're in a guided situation, if you've never been guided, when you're in a guided situation, no matter how skilled of a hunter you are or how much experience you are, you have to also realize like the, the guide-hunter relationship and respect it. I mean, otherwise, you won't ever work together as a team. So I've, I've, you know, I've only been guided a couple of times. Um, and this was, this was one of them. And, and so I, I, I knew I should just 
whatever instruction the guide gives me, I'm going to follow. And I'm going to kind of wait for him to make some of the key critical decisions. But in this particular situation, when the guide was like, oh, there he goes. I didn't even think twice. I think that just a killer instinct set in. I spun and and I just pointed to Tim and, and uh, you know, Tim's, Tim's like, hey, I want to film your hunt. So I'm like, oh, cool. But at that point, I'm like, I'm not waiting for Tim. And he uh, and I just I came around that corner and he was right there. I just instantly drew and he he spun and went kind of spun a 180. Mm-hmm. And he was I didn't even I didn't have time to range, but I guessed he was about 30 yards, 30, 35 yards. And I just drew back and let it rip. And he he was we we ranged it later and he was like 31 yards. Um, and I shot what I didn't know at the time when I shot him, the guide had seen the other two billies we were looking for. I thought that was one of the billies. And it was actually a third billy that we had not ever seen. The uh-huh. two big ones that we were looking for actually ran off. Well, the guide tells me that after I, so the, the, the Billy runs kind of, kind of hobbles off and he's, he's like, butt to me. And Tim's like, Tim's like, get another arrow. So I, I just draw back. I range. It's like, he's like 50 and moving. And I just let one rip. And I just see this poof of hair and I'm like, sweet. I hit him. And what happened is I actually ran the, right, like it went right through, right. Basically through the hair up his spine and through the hair in his neck, I didn't even hit his body. <laughs> and uh, and I just saw this puff of hair. I was later got kind of bummed out because I kind of shaved his, his mane a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he just went over. So we ran. He went over this rise and down into that next big, huge valley. And I'm like, oh, dude, do not roll down into this valley because it's, you know, I don't know, 800 feet to the first, you know, ledge and then down another into some timber so we bust around we get up on this rise and and i'm you know i'm looking i can't see and the guide's kind of holding me like don't fall over and uh and we you know tim got a different angle and he's like i can see him down here and he was he had he had fallen over and died and and i was pretty uh pretty amazing when we got down there i'm like man this is a good size billy and the guide goes I think those two other billies ran off and I'm like, what, this isn't one of those billies. Why do, why do you let me shoot him? Yeah. And he goes, and he goes, this is a good billy. And I, I had that moment where I was like, Oh, it's not the one I wanted. And I remember looking at Tim and saying, dude, if I ever, if I ever seem ungrateful, like just kick me in the nuts. Cause I'm like, yeah. Don't. <laughs> I'm like cause for a moment I was all bummed out because the two we were looking for, had actually ran off. Um, and this one I think was a little smaller, but then I kind of came back to my senses and realized I'm in the most amazing rugged country ever. And I just shot a mound go with my bow. And this is, this is a once in a lifetime situation. And I was just, Oh, just elated. It was, it was super rad. Oh, that's, that is awesome. And did he fall a long ways? Like, did you have to go down and get him? super fortunate he rolled and he hit this spine on this whole like face there was one little spine where there was a little rock outcropping and there was was probably two and a half three feet wide of kind of this vertical little spine and he hit that spine and hit the the one rock and had he fallen to the left or the right he would have got another 500 feet um and he just, it was perfect. It was absolutely perfect. I was, and there was some water 
near like just around the corner there's a little stream kind of running so we were able to walk over to this little stream bed um that had a little bit of a bench so we transported the meat over there after we took photos and washed up and um those guys were they kept saying they and so the first thing we did was left our left the weapon there and 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 we had to hike back up the you know, 600 feet or so to, uh, to the ridge to get our packs and then come back down. <laughs> Those guys gave me a bunch of gas for that. They were like, see, I told you we should have brought the packs. And I'm like, I know, but I don't think we would have been down there quiet enough. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Um, and then like, then obviously packed them back to base camp. And then from there, did you guys go all the way down to the main base camp after that? Yeah. So we, we, it was, it was a long, that was a long night. That was the night we came back in the dark. Um, we got, we were, our hope was to get around the first horseshoe into the next Valley to then go up the face, up that, up that cliffy face and then back over to our camp. Um, we wanted to at least get, you know, through the horseshoe Valley. Cause it was a little tricky, um, which we were, we were successful. It got, it got dark right as we got over what was called the bear hump. Um, got back into moonscape and it, that was when we navigated <clears throat> you know it was i remember looking at adam that that guy was an animal i mean he he packed so much i mean I, my pack was heavy tim's was super heavy he had all his camera gear you know we had this goat between the three of us um and then all the gear that we had uh so we got back we were pretty pretty bushed um we knew the next day we would we would make our way down uh, we had two goats and then I had also killed a black bear, my first, my first bear, um, with a bow. And so we had between the four of us, we had three animals to pack down <laughs> and, um, you know, usually the guides on a situation like that, a guide will let you sleep in and then you just kind of take your time. But the guide got us up early and said, Hey, we, we've got to get down. Uh, there's a storm coming. And the the last window of time is like 5 p.m. or 4 p.m., whatever it was. And he said, we've got to go now. And so it was just full on, you know, we loaded up. It was, we did a meat haul down. And, uh, and I remember Tim, Tim was weird. He got, he got kind of sick and I don't know what it was from, but he, man, that guy was turning kind of white and he lost a little bit of lunch. And, and uh, I don't know, I think it might've been dehydration of sorts, but, um, even he was pretty shocked at how, how, you know, how, how gassed he was, but we went down back up, broke camp and took camp and the rest of the meat. So we made two runs that day. So 3000 feet each way. Um, and we missed, we missed the, the airdrop. I mean, we missed the airplane picking us up by about a half hour. So it was, uh, it was a, Hey, just plan on hunkering down and we're going to be here for probably three or four days and we'll weather out this storm. Oh really? <laughs> it it fortunately ended up only being a day and a half or a day, but because uh, the they had a little kind of the eye before the you know the eye of the storm kind of situation yeah. where it got got calm. But Tim and I kind of we looked at each other and said, "Well, at least we're just going to hang out in this tent and play cards and just chit chat for two or three days and wait wait for the storm to." to to go its way and that's that's part of alaska too as you probably know is just being uber flexible to whatever whatever mother nature dishes up yeah i mean i i made sure on the 
end of my trip that I had extra days that I was able to be off of work because I just didn't know. We ended up coming out early because we, we tagged out and they were able to come in and get us, but heard from another group that was not that far from us, but apparently where they were at, the storms were worse and they, they killed on like the second or third day and they were stuck there another four or five days before they could even get out. Wow. It was, just waiting. Yep. Just waiting. That'd be, that'd be a long, a lot of time in the tent. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Yeah. But, um, oh, that's, that's freaking awesome. I, I, I've been, uh, been looking forward to talking to you about that story specifically, just because it's, again, I love Alaska and I think as many people as they can experience it should, cause it's, it's, it's if you ever thought about it. Oh yeah. And then I, you know, I mean, I still, still vivid memories of looking around that Valley, you know, here I am with my goat and I'm just looking around this Valley. Like this is the most unreal place on the planet for me to be at this moment. And to have been fortunate enough to, to kill a goat with my bow, my second one that year to just, it'll never repeat itself ever. Yeah. Oh, I could imagine. And so I wanted to uh, I wanted to go a little bit deeper than we have time for, but into your love, you know, we're just talking about this epic mountain hunt, but you love whitetails as well. So I just want to hear kind of your your thought process behind whitetail hunting. Man, that's I never thought that I would be a whitetail junkie, and and I I wouldn't say that I'm a whitetail like you know like guru or anything like that. I'm I'm still like a Padawan learner, but um the whitetail hunting is so amazing it's just like addicting as ever and i i mean i i we i've got a lease with some friends some guys that were actually camel fire customers for a long long time we became good friends they uh they're from tennessee they've got a they have a lease in kentucky and a spot opened up a few years back and they said hey we know you love whitetail hunter you want to get into it and man those guys have been so awesome taking me under their wing teaching me stuff they do a lot of the work on this big farm. Um, and I go out twice a year in November, I go for a week. And then in January, I usually go for three or four days. Um, but my goodness, they're whitetail are such a fascinating deer. They're so dang like wily and yeah. fidgety and, and just, they, you know, they, they, they're like ghosts. They appear out of nowhere, pat, trying to pattern those things. Uh, it, Everything about it, I love. I love the suspense. I love. I mean, I still even a doe will come up, and I still get like buck fever, and like my heart starts beating. I start calm down already. You know, it's it. It's just it's just a cool, very different type of hunting that 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 I. I mean, I don't care how many guys from the west like poo poo sitting in a tree stand, but sitting in a tree stand hunting whitetail in, in the right spot at the right time of year, or even in the, in a bad spot, the bad time of year in my book is still just fascinating and so fun. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's a whole different, I look forward to after, you know, the tough, you know, Western hunts and stuff to spending some time sitting in a tree. That's uh, it's, it's like, every, you know, I mean like the, the rut it's, it's long, um, you know for me and really for anybody that does it like it's a grind even though you're just sitting there it's a grind but it's also oh, yeah. a nice you know physical break a little bit there too <laughs> yeah white whitetail for me has been like every single sit every single like movement of deer i i learn stuff and maybe because i you know i've only been doing this for you know five six years 
but I feel like I'm always learning. I'm always being surprised at, at what the, what the deer are doing or how they're moving or I just, you know, watching a buck, you know, nose down chasing does and does just bounding, you know, all over the woods. I mean, all that stuff is so wild. I, I remember one day we were out, it was middle of the day and, and my friend Richard was on, at, at the farm and I remember we were checking one of his stands because he wanted to swap out a, a, a strap. And I saw a doe over near this fence line um, in the CRP next door. And I'm like, I'm like, dude, I'm going to ground stalk her. And he goes, you can't ground stalk that. Like, why tell don't ground stalk? I'm like, I'm going for it. And, and I mean, that was a fun challenge. Like, yeah. I got like 40 yards. And, and had she been on the right side of the fence, I would have filled, I would have, I would have put an arrow in her because, uh, you know, in Kentucky, you get a handful of doe tags. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, so I've gotten into, I recently just got into some saddle hunting too. And, and I've, I've, I did a ton of saddle hunting last year. And, and I just, you know, all these different ways of, of, of hunting whitetail. And, and it's just, I'm like a student. I'm soaking it in. Yeah. Oh, it is. It is cool. Cause like I, for a while I had, I had typically only hunted archery for whitetails cause I had filled my tags and been lucky and got done before rifle season came in. Well, the last few years have struggled to that point and had to get the gun, but I found a full, a whole nother love of being able to, I, I got away from going in the tree during that time and just sneaking, you know, just still hunting, you know, kind of sneaking around these ridges and, and doing that's you know, and setting up for a little bit and then just kind of moving along. And that has a whole nother element of fun to it. And that's why I do love whitetails. There's so many different ways and styles that you can hunt them and different times of the year. And it's, it's a blast. And, and I mean, with elk, elk are suit, I mean, elk are smart. You know, all all animals in the woods have you know a sense of smart. You can get away with a lot with with you know any kind of animal, but I'm shocked at how white tail. I'm like, no way that guy just busted me. Yeah, you know, are you kidding? I didn't even breathe. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like, and the wind is in my face, and that I'm just yeah, it, it's amazing. White tail are uh, are a pretty rad creature, and I think maybe because they're so plentiful, people just kind of like yeah, whatever. Like they're dime a dozen, but there uh there's a lesson you learn from every white tail running i've had yeah oh that's 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 for sure i mean i mean i've been doing it my whole life and i every single time i still learn learn something i love it i just i'm fascinated by just watching them and and understanding why they're doing certain things and the things they eat and it's just it's pretty crazy yeah yeah i love it i uh i'm looking forward to november i actually passed on an odd and hunt invite uh because i it was going to be the same time as my uh my annual trip uh, pilgrimage to kentucky <laughs> i know you were telling me that before we started recording and and that had to be tough but you can't oh i was like oh man i don't i don't know about that i can't do can't go to texas to hunt odd ad i'm sorry yeah oh that's funny oh man well Good luck to you on your hunts this year, Kendall. I appreciate you taking the time during your busy time of with Black Ovis and Camo Fire and everything else because you were you were shipping orders earlier. You said you were in the warehouse and everything, and like I I appreciate you taking some time. 
No worries. I love talking about uh, fun hunts and talking with cool people like yourself. And I appreciate the the opportunity. It's been good getting to know you, and and hopefully this has uh, been helpful or interesting to your to your audience. Yeah, I, I mean it definitely was for me. So if, if no one else gets anything out of it, then uh, I I don't know what they're listening to. But <laughs> <laughs> so where where can people find um, you know whether you want to give links black ovis everything else your your own stuff whatever i'd love to to be able to direct people to check out some of your stuff yeah for sure uh you know camelfire.com and and blackovis.com are two retail sites and then crispyus.com is another website um i'm on i'm on the gram i don't post a ton but uh kendall j card two l's on the kendall and but uh um yeah that's kind of where you can find me and if anyone ever you know anyone out there wants to hit me up for, you know, gear recommendations or tips or whatever. I'm happy to share just Kendall at camelfire.com is my email. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Kendall. And, uh, we'll be talking to you soon. Perfect. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.